Well, it's hard to believe, but we are on the last chapter in Isaiah. What a journey it has been. I told the afternoon folks, it's been like a roller coaster, up and down with the and twists and turns. There's so many things in the book of Isaiah. One thing that I have uh, appreciated in studying the book and kind of taking it a little slower is to get more of an under or better understanding of uh, when, uh, what time frame things you're talking about. So I trust that the next time you're reading through and the Old Testament in particular, and it's talking about a particular time frame, you'll have some clues. Is this talking about current days, like the current days of Isaiah? Or is this talking about a time of judgment, like when the Babylonians uh, came into and destroyed Jerusalem? Or is this a time out of the future? Perhaps one of the two advents of Christ, his first coming in Bethlehem, or his second coming in, uh, as he comes in power and glory. This is talking about the millennium. And uh, many times you can pick up little clues in the discussion. And we've talked so much about it in Isaiah. I hope it's been a blessing. But this last chapter is a uh, kind of an umbrella in that it uh, gives us a, a, uh, a broad look back. And then it looks again to the future and kind of brings everything together. And so I'm excited to bring it to you tonight. Let me read for you Isaiah 66, verse 1, and then we will pray and begin our discussion. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? If you're taking notes, Roman number 1 is Israel's almighty God. Almighty God. Dear Lord, thank you for your love. And thank you for giving us this incredible opportunity week after week to dissect this book of Isaiah and just to follow it along. And Lord, I, I trust that, that uh, we won't soon forget many of the truths that we've learned in this book. And now, Lord, as we are at the last chapter, once again, I would ask your Holy Spirit to quicken our minds and to give to us what you'd have for us out of this book. And uh, Lord, as going to be leaving it, I'm going to be leaving it somewhat bittersweet. It's been a challenge of a book to study, but I'm going to miss it. So I pray, Lord, that you will help us tonight by, by working in our hearts and lives, and we'll thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one is, well, let me give you letter A. Letter A is God's power and might is indescribable. Indescribable. And then number one under that is God's overwhelmingly vast presence is declared. This final chapter of Isaiah provides an overview of the main themes of the book, and I like how he begins this. He's, he's, uh, he's saying, through Isaiah, the heaven is my throne, so I sit in the heavens, and the earth is my footstool. So just in your mind, get this image of God leaning back, and his throne, and stretching out his feet, and plopping his feet on the earth, the earth supporting his feet as if that were possible. And then he goes on a little bit later in particular, he says, you really think you could fit me in a house somehow? Can you really build a house big enough for me? Israel and Judah have continued in their idolatrous ways, and they must face the justice of God in judgment. He looks beyond their judgment to their glorious future. 
when in his mercy he restores them as his own once again. Now what I've just read is Isaiah's overview. It talks the first 39 chapters primarily of God's judgment. They have been so wicked. The priests have been drunkards. The people have been idolatrous. It has been a horribly wicked nation that he's talking to. And he says, I'm going to judge you. But the reason he's giving them this book is out of mercy, giving them a chance to repent before it's too late. Of course, history tells us they did not repent and judgment had to come. God opens up the chapter by declaring his vastness and his majesty. How can man build an enclosure large enough to provide for his vast expanse? As he stood before the Sanhedrin, delivering his last message before becoming a martyr for Christ, Stephen quoted from this passage. In Acts 7, 48 and following, How be it the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet? Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Verse 2. For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Number two, Almighty God searches for humility. The chapter opens up by giving us a perspective of God's vastness. Of course, He's infinite. There's no way to describe how big God is. It's, it's, it's impossible. If you've studied uh, the skies at all to know how big some of these stars are, the stars are literally beyond comprehension. And then to understand how far from Earth some of these stars are, even close stars. So far, in fact, that the distance has to be measured in light years. How far light will travel in a year? We're talking about distances the likes of which we can't even fathom. So just go out, oh, four or five dozen stars worth, and take a look back to Earth. And from that perspective, you will not even be able to see Earth. It is so tiny. So fly on out to the outskirts of the universe. And now look from the outskirts of the universe to all the stars and try to find Earth. You won't find it. It's too small. It's so incredibly microscopic, you will not find it. And yet, Earth is at the center of God's attention. You take that microscopic dot that's not even big enough to register in the universe and understand that what God is intricately taking care of are, are, are the people on that dot. Who is it on that dot, according to this verse, that catches God's attention? <laughs> For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have I been, saith the Lord, notice, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. God is looking for those that are humble. 
It's, it's the humble ones that catch his attention here. The great God who inhabits the heavens is the one responsible for their creation. The heavens and the earth were spoken into existence by his mighty power. He who is limitless in power and glory searches for those of his creation, not who strut themselves out and say, God, here I am, notice me. It's those who walk humbly before him and yield to his word. The all-powerful one is moved to help the one who confesses he has no power on his own. Humility attracts God's grace, while pride repels him. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Letter B, God's intolerance of Israel's sin. Verse 3, he that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. Number one, Israel's worship made God sick. God's people were so wayward in Isaiah's day that God described their worship as detestable. To him, his people's offering of an ox. Just imagine, it's time to bring, bring your animals in for the required offering. And they brought an ox in for an offering. And that's an expensive offering. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty hefty offering. That'd be like bringing maybe six months' worth of tithe in. And so you bring that check in, and you're going to put it in the offering plate. And as you do so, your hand's shaking a little bit, and you've got to pry it out of your hand a little bit. To him, his people's offering of an ox was just as sickening as if they had killed a man. Their lamb sacrifices were abominations to him as if they had offered an unclean dog. Their meat offerings, called oblations, were as if they were dripping in the blood of abominable pigs. The burning of their incense was to him as if they were offering it to the one of their wicked idols. Their ways were contrary to the ways they had been called to live in, in full surrender to the Lord God. Judges 10, 14 and 15, Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen, let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Verse 4. He says, I also will choose their delusions, and I will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. Any of you like I was when I was a child, or my parent, I forget now, mom or dad was calling me, and I went like this, I can't hear you. I think I did it one time, <laughs> and I got cured. <laughs> God's people were doing that to God. I can't hear you. 
I'm not listening, turning their back on him when he spoke. Judges 10, 14. No, um, number two, Israel's refusal to listen to God brought his judgment. The word delusions. Interesting, God gave them delusions. It can mean vexations. God said here that he had been responsible for choosing the dreadful judgments that would fall upon his people. Those judgments would certainly be as a result of their delusion that they could get by with their idolatry and God wouldn't care. God had repeatedly reached out to his people through his word and through his prophets, but they had refused to listen. They carried out their wickedness before him with no regard to his concern. Don't you suppose God knows what to do to make us fearful? What delusions it would take to catch their attention? Proverbs 1, 31 and 32, Therefore they shall eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Letter C, God's sovereign rule and care. God's sovereign rule. For here we're talking about Israel and how wicked they are. And they're refusing to listen to the prophets, the word of God. They're refusing to listen. They're, dis they're deplorable. He said, even their, their offerings to me are abominations. And out of that, that, that horrible, horrible atmosphere comes verse number five. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, and he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. So number one, a word of encouragement to the godly remnant. So out of that horrible description of how Israel, Judah are nationally, there are still a few. There are still a few that are still faithful to God called a remnant, the godly remnant. God gives a special word of encouragement to those who had stayed faithful to him, the remnant of godly believers. They had consistently been hated and outcast by the majority of Jews who were following their ungodly desires. However, God told them of his plans to bring them great joy when he appears. That day will be when the Lord returns in great power and glory. The godly will be glorified with him, and the ungodly will be shamed. Proverbs 13, 13, Whoso despiseth the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. I thought about this particular thought. That day will, will there will be a day where God returns in power and great glory. A day in which the remnant will be glorified. A day in which the remnant will receive the blessing of the Lord. But how do they feel when they received that word in the midst of their trials? So, so Isaiah receives this prophecy. The Assyrians are, John, are jarring with them, threatening to overtake them, not long before the Babylonians come and destroy them. In the middle of that chaos, God gives them this this prophecy, that for the remnant, those faithful few, it will be a time of blessing. But, but it's not going to be now. It's going to be in the future, perhaps hundreds of years in the future. I said, at first I said, that seems like 
hardly any kind of encouragement. And they're in the trials right now. They're going through the hard times right now. And you're saying they're not going to receive blessings for possibly hundreds of years or, or sometime way off in the future. And we know it's not happened yet. What kind of encouragement is that? And then I thought for a moment. How old I am. And I thought, I've got nine grandkids. Where'd they come from? Can't believe it. It's mind-blowing how fast the time has gone. In incredible. When did we start celebrating Christmas three times a year? It's phenomenal how fast time is going. And then, and then I realized, through the mature, faithful believer, this can be a tremendous encouragement, just like it can for you to realize, though this life may be a very hard life, there's going to be a day in the not-too-distant future of tremendous blessings. And do you think we're going to enjoy those blessings any less just because they're far off? When those blessings come, we're going to be so incredibly enraptured in joy. And so what we must do is look to the time of God's blessings. So we're at a time of horrible judgment or a time of horrible trial or a time of horrible testing. We can say, okay, God, I'm going to take you at your word. Because you say there's going to be a time of great blessing, and I'm going to find encouragement to hang on for that time. Number six, verse 6, a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Number two, God will declare his vengeance on his enemies. Here's described the awful vengeance that God will execute on his enemies. From Jerusalem, specifically from the temple, the voice of the Lord will cry out against all those who opposed him. In Zechariah 14.3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. Number two, God the Messiah. God the Messiah. Verse 7. <laughs> I'm going to read this verse. Pay very close attention to the chronology of what happened here. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. You see a problem there? Did you catch the problem? Before she travailed, she brought forth. And before the pains came, she was delivered. Letter A, the Messiah came before Israel's pain. The Messiah came before Israel's pain. The scene looks now to Israel and the birth of the Messiah. The natural progression of a delivery is obviously disheveled as pains and travailing come before the birth. The labor pains. This speaks of the coming of the Messiah to earth the first time in the form of a little baby. To the nation of Israel, his first coming brought no pain nor travail. That would all change, however, when he came back the second time. Revelation 12:1. following, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, 
and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, to cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Verse 8. Notice what God says here. In response to verse number 7, he says, Who hath heard such a thing? In other words, who's heard of the baby being delivered before the pain happens? He said, who's heard of such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Letter B. The Messiah would both precede and follow the great pains of his nation. The delivery of a child before its mother goes into labor and pain is unnatural and unheard of. This analogy is purposely stated to call attention to the events. From the nation of Israel will come the Messiah in the form of Christ child, born in a stable and in humble means. However, a look to the second coming of Christ paints a completely different picture. Travail and pain will precede Christ's second coming, as the tribulation will be a time of intense persecution and bloodshed. Though nations cannot typically be made in one day, Christ's return and utter decimation of the ungodly will leave him reigning as king over the then redeemed nation of Israel. So there's an awful lot said in this verse. You see the two advents of Christ, the birth of Christ, the second coming of Christ in this one verse. Um, it talks about a new nation happening in one day. How could a nation occur in one day? Because when the Lord returns with us, He's going to come and destroy all the ungodly. Only the godly will be standing, stepping into the millennium with a new nation, of which He will be the king, a nation of the redeemed. And it will happen in just one day. Isaiah 64, 4. I, this was amazing when I made this application to this verse. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Our sovereign God got a future in mind, the likes of which is going to blow your mind. It's incredible. Verse 9. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Let her see. God here asks a rhetorical question. He does not want your answer. Because he expects the listeners to know the answer. God would bring forth his Messiah first as a baby and second as a victorious king. Revelation 12:5. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Number three, Jerusalem's restoration and rebuilding under the Messiah. Verse 10. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad for her, or with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. 
Letter A, all who love Jerusalem will rejoice at God's merciful plans for her. I found this interesting. One of the things that we are told to pray for is the peace of Jerusalem. We're to pray for peace in Jerusalem. Now, when we pray for peace in Jerusalem, what are we really praying for? We pray for, oh God, bring peace in Jerusalem, but knowing, knowing what's going to happen, what does that mean we're really praying for? Ultimately, yes, what? Yeah, we're praying for the Lord's return because we know when peace is going to come. Peace will not come till the Lord returns. And so when we pray, oh God, bring peace to Jerusalem, well, the way that's going to occur is the Lord returning. So in essence, we're praying, oh Lord, come again. Come again, the second time. God's plan of rebuilding and restoring Jerusalem and his people is news worth rejoicing. All who have prayed for peace in Jerusalem will join those who enter into the millennium with Christ in praising and glorifying their Lord for his care for their beloved city. And I happen to think that you who are praying for peace in Jerusalem will be included in this group. A rejoicing, because we will see the answer to our prayers. It's happened. Letter B. As a well-fed baby finds satisfaction from its mother, so the redeemed will find great delight in Jerusalem's blessings. You mothers will have a greater concept of the meaning here as I read verse number 11. That ye may suck and be satisfied with the breast of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. And I want you to think of the infant, the infant who is delighting in this experience with his mother. He's close to his mother, and now he is being very, very well fed and just soaking up the love that comes with it. That's the description here. With the image of a baby being blessed and satisfied by the abundant milk of his mother, so the redeemed will find great joy in the blessings afforded them by the Lord in the day he becomes king. Jerusalem will become a haven of blessings for all the redeemed in that day. And God says, how can I help them mortals understand how much of a blessing it's going to be? And he pictures this baby being overloaded, this baby being so, so loved by its mother. And that's what it'll be like for the redeemed in that day. The blessings will be so incredible and they'll be so loved in that day. Joel 3, 17 and 18. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drop down new wine, the hill shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water and shall water the valley of Shittim. Verse 12 and 13, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees, as one whom his mother comforteth, 
so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. See the analogy continuing into this verse here? The little child being so loved and bounced on the mother's knee and just, just loved incredibly. Let her see, Jerusalem will be a haven of peace to its inhabitants in that day. They will be at such peace they'll feel like a baby in the arms of its mother. After the tumultuous days of the tribulation, Jerusalem will finally find peace as Jesus takes his rightful place as king. Gentiles will freely flow to Jerusalem, finding peace and delighting in their Savior. Israel will experience the joy and safety as would an infant being carried securely by its mother and bounced on her knees in delight. God will comfort his people as would a mother to her child. Jerusalem will finally provide comfort to its people. Isaiah 53 verse 1 or 51 verse 3 For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. I've not heard the last few days, but, but uh, if you've heard, does this describe Jerusalem today? Are they reveling in the peace and security in Jerusalem today? My guess is they probably had rockets sent their way. My guess is they wondered and prayed if the Iron Dome would continue to protect them. But in this day, no need of an Iron Dome. Why? Because the Lord Jesus will be ruling and reigning and bringing protection for Jerusalem. And they will feel His love and enjoy His blessings. Verse 14, And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. Notice, in the millennium, when Christ is ruling and reigning, he will bring all these blessings upon his people, find peace and security, peace like a river, it says. And yet, indignation toward his enemies. Letter D. Witnesses of Jerusalem's restoration will rejoice. Now I read that just as a little sneak peek of what's coming. As God's people watch the development of the prophesied events and actually witness the restoration of Jerusalem and the great power of the Lord, they will break out in rejoicing and they'll flourish. Zechariah 10.7 And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as though through wine. Yea, their children shall see it, and be glad, their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Number four, the Lord will return with a holy vengeance. This is hard to grasp because we have such a gospel's mentality of Christ. Now, Jesus was born in a humble manger, and how Jesus grew up, and, 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 and at 12 years old, he was in the in the, uh, in the uh, synagogue there, he was teaching the rabbis and how Jesus was, was meek and mild throughout his life. That, that same Jesus is described here as coming back with a holy vengeance. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord, that same Lord who was born in Bethlehem, will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury 
and his rebuke with flames of fire. That array, the Lord's second coming, will be in fire and vengeance upon his enemies. When he comes the second time, it will not be in humble surroundings like the first. It will be in flaming fire and vengeance, destroying his enemies at the battle of Armageddon. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven, notice, when he's revealed from heaven, when the skies part and he comes from the skies where all shall see him, he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven opened, there it is again, the skies split, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 16, For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Letter B, the Lord's vengeance will be by fire and by his sword. Of course, we know the sword is the word of the Lord, the word of God. The Bible clearly states that the Lord Jesus will defeat his enemies at Armageddon by the sword of his mouth and in flaming fire. The enemies of the Lord will die before the all-powerful power, all vengeance of the King of Kings. Revelation 19.15, Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Shouldn't surprise us. The destruction will come from his mouth, the words of his mouth. We're told that he spoke the worlds into existence in six days. That's mighty powerful words. So if his words can create the worlds in six days, surely he can destroy his enemies by the same word. Verse 17, They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, notice, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination, and the mouse, shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. Letter C. The Lord will find the wicked behaving wickedly when he returns. Go figure. The wicked behave wickedly. This may be a description of what was occurring in Isaiah's day that would find its own expression by the wicked when Jesus returns in power. They were worshiping their gods in the privacy of their backyards. They were ignoring the dietary laws and eating abominations like pork and like mice. Here it says, the Lord will find similar conditions when he returns. Now, were these actual mice? I don't know. Some commentaries say they're a different kind of animal. I don't know. I do know that you get hungry enough and you'll eat just about anything. And I'm assuming enough Tabasco sauce would make that mouse taste palatable. Isaiah 65, verse 3 and 4, A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens, and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves, and lodge in the mountain, monuments, which eat swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Now here's the deal. On a regular basis, I eat bacon. I love bacon. I like it crisp. I like ham. 
I love ham. I love country ham. I love sugar-cured ham. I love pig. The flavor, I'm going to guess, of the pig hasn't changed that much from when they had it in Isaiah's day. So I'm guessing it tasted pretty good back in his day, too. They knew how to fix it. Probably tasted pretty good. But the people of God were told by God not to eat it. It doesn't matter if it was good for their body or not. He said, don't touch it. It doesn't matter if it could cause any kind of problems or not. The issue wasn't that. The issue was God said, don't do it. And yet they were doing it. They were ignoring his dietary laws as if to say, God, it doesn't really matter what you say right now. I'm going to serve my flesh, and I'm hungry, and I'm hungry for bacon. Now, is it wrong for us to eat bacon today? Here's the deal. There are those today that say that God is displeased with Christians when they eat pig. I take them back to Peter. When God pulled out the sheep, in that sheep were all these animals. Animals that the Jews said are abominations. There's pigs in there and lobster and shrimp in there. We can't eat that. Apparently some mice in there. We can't eat that. And what did God say? That which I called um, clean, don't call thou common. Now, obviously, he wasn't telling Peter he had to go eat all, he had to go eat all the food. It was a point that he was going to introduce his ministry to the Gentiles and take the gospel to the Gentiles. But the point is, from that point on, it was not an abomination for the redeemed to eat these kinds of foods. Now, for health purposes, a totally different thing. Totally different. If a person chooses not to eat it because of health purposes, that's one thing. But to say, God's been displeased with me, that's a whole other thing here. The Lord will, will find the wicked behaving wickedly when he returns. And again, shouldn't surprise us. Verse 18, for I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. Well, that's incredible. Notice. I'm going to gather all the nations together. And they're going to come so they can see my glory. Here's what I think he means here, letter D. God will gather the nations to collectively watch the Lord's return. God is going to call the nations so they will not miss when Jesus splits the skies. Now, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know. This afternoon, did your cell phone go off? Mine did. We had a national alert to test the phone system to see if they can send alerts out. Okay, Is God going to send alert out on our cell phones? On that? I don't know. Somehow he's going to get the attention of all the world. And then I ask myself, okay, how are the people on the other side of the world going to see it if he comes where we can see it? I don't know. Perhaps that's what he's going to do. Bring everybody around to one side of the world. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I believe God is going to make it so that everybody on earth can see the Lord's return because it is going to be so incredible. Ezekiel 39, 21. And I will set my glory among the heathen, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid upon them. Number five. The message of Christ will surround the globe. It grieves me to know today that there are people groups that have still not heard the gospel of Christ. 
there are people groups that still have not seen a copy of God's Word. There is not one in their language yet. It grieves me. But listen to this, verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javon, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Letter A. God will send preachers to carry the message of Christ to the world. Now, I think that what's being talked about here are those 144,000 Jews, young Jewish men, who are going to hear the gospel, perhaps preached by the two witnesses. They're going to hear the gospel, and they're going, the Bible says, they're going to surround the globe, spreading the message of Christ. Now, it, it, it seems to indicate, seems to suggest, that because of God's mercy and His unwillingness that any should perish, it seems to be that they're going to be able to find all of those people groups in this day and bring the gospel to them in that day. Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, shall my name be great among the Gentiles. Sounds like all the way around the globe. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Has that happened yet today? No. No. But it seems to be there's going to come a time in the future when that will occur. Verse 20, And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and litters, upon mules and upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. Letter B, God will call His people to return to Israel from all around the world. It's time. Come on home. The millennium's beginning will include a call around the world for Jews to return to their homeland. Of course, that will occur during the tribulation leading up to the beginning of the millennium. God will make provision for the mass return as God's people will come prepared to worship their Savior and King in the newly built temple. And how will they get there? Well, here he says, on horses, chariots, litters, upon mules, upon swift beasts. I'm taking a lot of license with this, but I think you can interject a lot of things into swift beasts, like fast jets, like fast boats. Isaiah 56, 7, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Number six, redeemed Israel under the leadership of their king. Verse 21, And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. Letter A, I know this is incredible. We talked about this, I think, last week. But God will re reinstate the Levitical order and priesthood. He will reinstate the Levitical order and priesthood. Ezekiel spends quite a bit of time talking about this, how in the millennium God is going to reestablish the worship, the kinds of worship, he did in the Old Testament. 
in the new millennium temple, there will be offerings. I mean animal sacrifices in the millennium, which is mind-blowing. Why do we need animal sacrifices? Why does blood have to flow any longer? Jesus was the sacrifice that took care of all sacrifices. Why does there need to be more in the millennium? I think it's because of a memorial. I think because Jesus wants from here on out for people to remember what he did. And one of the best ways to do it is to do something that, that catches our attention like this. And if you think that's incredible, let me read verse 22 for you. Uh, no, it's not there yet. Not that verse. Anyway, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Okay, so will the new heavens and new earth remain forever? The answer is yes. It says, so will your seed and your name remain. So letter B, redeemed Israel will last for eternity. God declared that as the new heavens and new earth that he will make will last forever under his power, so redeemed Israel will also last forever into eternity. Number five, life in the millennium. Life in the millennium. Verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Notice, all flesh. All flesh shall come periodically to Jerusalem to worship before the Lord. Now, is it realistic to think that all of the inhabitants of the world will converge in Jerusalem on one day to worship the king? My thinking is no. So I see here a, a, a rotating system of people coming to Jerusalem. Okay, it's my turn. It's my time of year. It's my turn to go now to Jerusalem. Uh, God's going to break it up so people come, I think, at different times. Letter A, the nations of the earth will regularly come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And here's what I was thinking of, verse 24. And they shall go forth. What's the time frame? The millennium. And they shall go forth. And look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. They're going to go forth, apparently during the millennium. Here's what they are going to see. The carcasses of the men that have transgressed against the Lord. Apparently during the millennium. Now just let that settle for a moment. During the millennium, Jesus is going to be the protector of Jerusalem. But there will be those that rise up against him, apparently. And what will be their fate? They will be in a pile. And their carcasses will be worm-eaten by worms that can't die. And they will be left there for everyone coming by that way to see this memorial. And it's possible, possible, it will become a tourist attraction. From all around the world, people will come to see 
that gruesome sight that will bring incredible glory to the Lord. How dare they rise up against the king? In Psalm 58, verse 10 and 11, the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. You think, when, let's say your dad, say your dad had a horrible, horrible temper. And when he went off, oh, did he go off. Angry. Oh, angry. Slamming doors and kicking things and screeching the tires when he left. Just angry. Did his children rejoice at that? No. But notice what it said. The righteous will rejoice when they see the vengeance of the Lord. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Hmm. Hard to comprehend. But we're on the winning side. And that's so important. And we just finished the book of Isaiah. Hallelujah. What a journey it's been on. It's been a roller coaster of emotions. Really, it has been. And I want to thank the Lord for our time together. And so, so let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your love and blessings, and thank you for giving us this most amazing book. And Lord, though it answers many, many questions, it creates quite a few too. I'm looking forward to being with you and being taught this book. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to live our lives more in accordance to your will and with, a, with our eyes fixed on the future, knowing that you, our sovereign God, is in complete control. Go with us, I pray, as we seek to serve you, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.